0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Let us continue to yeah, lift up this world in prayer, continue to lift one another up in prayer as we especially need it. And let us right now turn to God's Word as well. So take with me, take your Bibles, let's turn to John chapter 7. And we'll be looking at John chapter 7, verses 20. to 36. John chapter 7, verse 25 to 36. I will not have the passages up on the screen behind me. I hope that we can keep our eyes focused upon the Word of God on your laps, on your cell phone, wherever you're maybe reading it. I want us to take a look at this together with our eyes there. Um, But before we read this passage, let me just give you some context. This morning, we are going to pick off where we left off le- last week. Uh, last week, we see Jesus here in the middle of a feast called the Feast of Booths. And if you're wondering what the Feast of Booths is, it's a seven day festival celebrating the Exodus event where God led Israel out of Egypt. And there, this is one of three major Jewish feasts celebrated by the Jews. And arguably, this one's perhaps the most popular one. This, the Jews from all across the region will come gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booth. This was like the Coachella for the Jews. And as we covered last week, Jesus arrived at this feast secretly. He came undercover, but though he came secretly, Jesus soon revealed himself through the public teaching in the temple. And we have to remind ourselves that at this time Jesus was not an unknown figure. He made himself quite quite a public figure earlier in the book of John. In fact, in the previous feast, just to give you guys some context, in John chapter five, verse eighteen, whoops, it says this 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 was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, Jesus made himself known, but not as a popular figure, but as a wanted man. The Jews wanted to kill him. And and they wanted to kill him because Jesus made himself equal with God, and the Jews steamed at this fact at the fact that Jesus claimed himself equal with God. And so when Jesus here appeared in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths, it caused a commotion when he made himself known. Man, the, the, feast, the Feast of Booths, the events page was blowing up. The tweets were coming in rapidly. Every news anchor had their hot takes, and they were spicy. Jesus came in secretly, but soon he became the center spectacle. And all the eyes were on him. And when you become a spectacle before the world, everything comes onto the table, doesn't it? The world will pick you apart with a fine-tooth comb, and that's what we will see here in our passage: Jesus being picked apart. And there are three areas about Jesus that the Jews will question. We will see him. We will see them questioning his origin, his authenticity. And his intention and so first looking at the Jews questioning his origin looking at verse 25 here we see perhaps arguably the most important question that the Jews are trying to tackle with Jesus and it says here in verse 25 some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said is not this the man whom they seek to kill And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Stop there. What we see here, the Jews here, particularly the ones ones who are from Jerusalem, they're asking the question as perhaps on everyone's mind, they're asking the question as perhaps the elephant in the room, why haven't the authorities arrested him? You see, this raised a seed of doubt in the Jewish people's minds. Perhaps perhaps the authorities really started, maybe perhaps they started to believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah, and that's why they haven't done anything yet. But the Jews, they dismissed this idea as soon as they asked it. In verse 27, it says this, but, but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, it says here first that the Jews know Jesus' origin. They say they knew where he comes from. That they knew he, they, they knew that he was a Nazarite. That he was the son of Joseph and Mary. So Jews looked at Jesus and they're like, we know you. We know where you're from. We know your hometown. We know your parents. And this doesn't match up with what they think they know about the Christ, about the Messiah that was supposed to be sent by God to save the Jews, to save their nation. You see, they believed they believed that the Christ will appear all of a sudden, and no one would know where he comes from. Now, we take a look at this, this thought process going through the Jewish people's minds. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that statement itself isn't necessarily true. If you actually take your finger, you go down later to verse 42. It says here that the Jews kind of know where Christ was to come from. Verse 42, chapter 7, verse 42 says, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, a village where David was? You see, so the Jews here, they knew that, they knew that Christ are, is supposed to be an offspring of David. They knew that Christ was to come from this small town of Bethlehem. And so they see this but they don't really know Jesus then, don't they? They read this and, and they don't know that Jesus was indeed a son of Joseph who was perhaps, who was indeed a descendant, a distant descendant of David. They didn't know that Jesus was born in a small town of Bethlehem. They only saw him as a Nazarite where he grew up with his parents. Now, why did the Jews think this? Now, why, why did Jews hold this belief that when the Christ appeared, no one will know where he comes from? Why did they say that when, obviously, they knew what the Scripture says? Well, around that time, there was a popular belief among the Jewish people where the Messiah would be unknown, not even to himself, until he suddenly gets anointed with power and is revealed to be the Christ. See, they believed that the person who was supposed to be the Christ would just be unknown to anyone, and all of a sudden, one day, it just happens, and the Christ is revealed. And not only that, but they also expected that when the Messiah gets revealed, when the Christ gets revealed, the Christ will appear, and he will overturn the Roman government. That will be his purpose, overturn the Roman government and reestablish Israel as God's holy nation. You see, what the Jews had here is they had a preconceived narrative. It was a narrative that was built off a misunderstanding of scripture and other traditions that was being handed down around that time, but it was a narrative nonetheless on how Christ will come and what he will do. And what we see here is that in the Jewish minds, Jesus' origin story did not match up. It did not fit within their narrative. Now, Jesus here answers their questions. He says in verse 28, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus responds first with a sarcastic statement. He's pretty much saying, you, you know me? You, you think you know me? See, the Jews here, they thought they knew Jesus, but they didn't really know him. They didn't really know where he came from. But note here, Jesus could have pointed out to where, his, where he was born. Jesus could have pointed out that Joseph was indeed a descendant of David. But Jesus didn't say all that because this was not his point. Instead, he says here, I come from him, from God, and you do not know him. Jesus is pointing out that his origin comes way before his human conception. His origin comes before the foundation of the world. It comes from God. Verse 29, Jesus says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. You see, Jesus here knew that it didn't matter whether or not the Jews got the facts straight. Jesus tackled the core issue, and the core issue is their faith. They doubted Jesus' teaching. And because they doubted Jesus' teaching, they would have never believed that Jesus is truly from God, no matter what he does to defend himself. In fact, it's because they asked this question, because they stated this question, this question revealed, demonstrated that not only did they not believe in Jesus, but they never knew God himself. That's a hard truth to swallow. Moving on, Jesus then or the Jews then reacted to a statement like this. And we see here next that they would start questioning his authenticity. This the statement that Jesus just said, it it aims right at the heart, it invokes a response, and we see here in verse 30 and 31 two different reactions to this statement. The first reaction verse 30 is from those who were not persuaded by what Jesus said. These are, I guess, quote-unquote, the haters. Verse 30 says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. And so these Jews, they couldn't get over the fact that Jesus, a man from Nazareth, could claim to be God. And and they so they looked to arrest him, looked to put him on trial, perhaps looking to kill him. But we have to take a step back here for a moment. As we read a passage like this, and I, I want us to be sympathetic to your reasoning here. I mean, just be sympathetic to what they're thinking. Because you too will be skeptical if i came up here and i claimed that i was from god right if i was god you too would be skeptical you too will have certain questions about me i mean some of you you grew up with me you'd probably be like man i knew you from high school you're the guy who slept in class all the time (laughs) how can you be from god and so we all want to be sympathetic to the way they're they're thinking Jesus here is claiming himself to be God, and that's a huge statement. But we also see a second reaction here. In verse 31, it says, Yet many people, many of the people believed in him. And they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now the text here, it says many of the people believed in him. The text doesn't really tell us if these people truly believe in the sense that they believed and received salvation. It simply says in this moment of time, these Jews, these people took Jesus to be credible. And we, we see this, I guess this half faith revealed in their question that follows. You see, these Jewish people they asked they they heard what jesus said they also seen what jesus has done throughout the land jesus performed many signs and miracles and so they're starting to put the two and two together and so they wondered well this man jesus did a lot of miracles and if he's not the christ and christ does indeed come later will this messiah will this christ do more signs than jesus did because this jesus guy is pretty amazing You see, the question here is a question of authenticity. The Jews here are asking, are you Jesus, the real thing, are you some knockoff product? Does Jesus' miracles, do Jesus' miracles truly reveal, prove his authenticity as the Christ? Now, we understand that signs alone, signs by themselves cannot save anyone. But that does not mean that signs and miracles are not important to look at. Right? Throughout the Gospel of John, we are seeing stuff like this. The signs and miracles throughout the Gospel of John are used, was used by Jesus to help people believe. I mean, earlier in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. This is... This is him turning water into water into wine. It says this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. See the signs pointed towards Christ. The signs affirmed the teachings of Jesus and who he is. Jesus himself recognized the importance of signs. Uh, later on in John chapter ten verse thirty seven, Jesus says this: "I am not doing the works." If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, Jesus' signs and miracles, all his healings, his casting out of demons, his turning water into wine, the breaking of the bread and, and feeding the thousands, all that. All that pointed to Jesus. Those were all signs pointing to Jesus. And what Jesus is telling the Jewish people, telling us, is to say, these all point to him. Believe in Christ. You see, the Jewish people here had had an issue with their heart here. They looked upon the sign, and they believed in the sign, perhaps. Perhaps all they wanted was the sign, but they didn't look towards where the sign was pointing to. It was as if there's this big neon sign before them that says, believe him, believe Jesus, and the arrow pointing there. But all they're doing is they say, I believe the sign, so I'm going to worship this sign, not never looking towards where that arrow is pointing. See, believing in signs and miracles... They're not enough, as we can see here. But again, we have to remember it is indeed a start. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And again, we want to sympathize with them. We want to sympathize with the way they're thinking about Christ. Because perhaps you yourselves are in a position praying for a miracle. You're praying for a miracle. Perhaps something in your own personal life. Perhaps you're praying over what's going on in Ukraine and you're praying for a miracle. And the miracle itself can indeed help you believe in God, but you have to remember that the miracle should not be the substance of your belief. The miracle points you to something greater, points you to the one who does the miracles, points you to God himself, to believe in him. And so the signs... The signs point to Jesus. And as Jesus is doing all this here, as he's engaging with the Jewish people here, they question his his authenticity, and then they question his intentions. Looking at verse 32 to 36, we see here the undercurrent of opinions that's going on, this lightning lightning. Um, current that's coming through the crowds it did not go unnoticed by the pharisees and these pharisees like reddit moderators they decided to take action and so they sent officers to arrest jesus says here in verse 32 the pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and pharisees sent officers to arrest him so they're now finally taking action and we have to wonder, why didn't it act until now when Jesus has been teaching publicly for some time now? I mean, these Pharisees, they were before this, in the front line, trying to get Jesus killed. Perhaps these Pharisees who constantly seek for man's approval, these Pharisees did not want to act until it was popular to do so we see here, Jesus then speaking, verse 33, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so Jesus here, Jesus here speaks quite ominously about his future. And to be honest, Jesus speaks pretty vaguely as well right? He, he's not very detailed in what he's saying here. It's, it's as if you're having a conversation with Jesus, and you're asking him, hey, Jesus, where are you going? Somewhere. Can, can I come with you? You can try. So it's, Jesus here is not being very clear. And so naturally, the Jews question his intentions, question his intentions. And we see here in verse 35, Then Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The Jews here are wondering... What does Jesus mean by this? What what is he intending to do? Now, the dispersion here, what the Jews are referring to, the dispersion among the Greeks, it refers to the Greek-speaking Jews that are living amongst the Gentiles. And so they're looking, and they're wondering about what Jesus is saying. They're thinking, is he saying that he's going to live with the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and bring his teachings there? maybe they're thinking Jesus is trying to run away because by going to the dispersion amongst the Greeks, Jesus will escape Jerusalem's jurisdiction and not be arrested. Jesus will in a sense become a fugitive. Perhaps that's why Jesus is being so vague and mysterious. Or perhaps there are, the Jews here are mocking Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, you claim to be the Messiah You're the ones who are supposed to reestablish Israel as your holy nation. Now you can go out to the Gentiles. What about us? Aren't you supposed to be our Messiah? And so they're mocking him. In any case, what they're wondering is, they're wondering if Jesus is running away. Is he running away? You see, in their minds, it didn't make any sense. His intentions didn't seem to match up with who he claims to be. Now, we look at this, and we, we know that the Jews misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus. I mean, if they, play, if they actually pay close attention, Jesus said where he's going. He said he's going back to him who sent me. He's going back to God the Father. But we can see here how their preconception of who Jesus is influenced their question here. Their question, what it does is it reveals their unbelief. They didn't understand Jesus because they didn't believe he was truly sent by God. So they didn't understand him. You see they they questioned Jesus here. And their question here reveals that they did not believe Jesus. They did not believe he was truly from God. And and their question here I don't think they're necessarily trying to clarify their confusion. I think they knew what Jesus was saying. They, knew, they understood that Jesus is saying he's from God. That's why they reacted this way. That's why they wanted to arrest him. I don't think they're here trying to clarify necessarily their confusion. They, what they wanted to do is they wanted to challenge Jesus. They wanted Jesus to conform to their belief about who the Messiah should be and what the Messiah should do. And if Jesus was truly their Messiah, then where he should be going is not out to the dispersion, but instead he should be going to the Roman government, overthrowing them and establishing them as God's holy nation. And so we see here a question of Jesus' intention. And so just to have all three points, recapping just exposition of this text before we get into some application. We see here the Jews questioning Jesus' origin, questioning Jesus' authenticity, and questioning his intention. Now, we see this narrative. We can see what's going on here. We can see what's going on with the Jewish people's minds. Now, how does that relate to us today in our context, in our society around us? One current trend that's been spreading throughout the evangelical world today is a topic of deconstruction. And if you're wondering what deconstruction is, it's a process where one seeks to question Christian traditions, Christian doctrines, Christian teachings that's been passed down over years, over decades, over centuries. And deconstruction has been going on throughout you see online much of we see a lot of people engaging with that. We've seen big name evangelicals talking about their process of deconstructing, deconstructing their faith. But I want to talk a little bit about this and how this relates to our passage. Deconstruction, first of all, as a process itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's okay to question what we hear. It's okay to question the traditions we follow. And it's okay to question it because we should do so so that we have a better understanding of our Christian faith, what it means to be a Christian. And perhaps that's where some of you are today, this morning. You're wrestling with these questions. Perhaps some of you know someone who's reconstructing their faith, and they're wrestling with questions. While deconstruction as a process itself is not necessarily a bad thing, we have to practice it carefully. See, oftentimes what's wrong with those who endorse deconstruction is not necessarily the process itself, but the methodology. The methodology. See, one question that deconstruction aims to target is the question of origin. Who taught this doctrine? Who established this tradition? What was their context what was their gender what was their race what was their family life essentially what is their origin story you see with deconstruction those who endorse it they'll claim that the origin story dictates the truth dictates the truth let me just give you an example one area that deconstructionists like to target is the question about gender roles between men and women and they like to question the view of complementarianism which is the, which teaches that men and women are created equal by God equal in worth and dignity but differently in roles and functions within the church and family and this is a view that I particularly stand with that I would teach and in a nutshell Just kind of, we can't get deep into this. This is an example. In a nutshell, complementarianism teaches that men are called to lead and women are called to help, to be partners. Now, I'm willing to engage with those who hold to a different view on these gender roles. As long as our conversation, our discussion about this remains focused upon looking at Scripture together as the standard of truth, but what happens with deconstructionism is that they don't base their arguments on scripture. Instead, they look, they base their arguments looking at perhaps who I am. And they see me as a male pastor. And so they will say, I'm holding to this position, perhaps, because I'm trying to keep a firm grasp on my power and leadership role. Or they'll look at a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul writes that woman should submit within the church. And they'll look at Apostle Paul and they'll question the Apostle Paul, arguing that his patriarchal background, his culture and society around that time influenced his teachings. And so he simply just taught according to the society he lived in. And that discredits him and his teaching. You see, what they're doing here is they're looking at a narrative. A story that claims that that men are the ones who hold on to these patriarchal traditions because men want to keep their power. Now, we want to look honestly upon history. We do see that men, there have been indeed men who have abused their power. We cannot ignore or deny those realities. I myself should make sure I watch over my own heart as as a husband, as a pastor, to make sure that I don't let sin corrupt my position of leadership. We want to, again, we want to be aware of those realities, be honest about them. But the problem is this. The problem comes when you hold a narrative up as a standard truth by which you judge all other doctrines and traditions. This is not saying we should ignore the narrative, we should indeed listen to it, because Many times the narrative will tell us the pain and hurt that people are going through. We want to be sympathetic. We want to understand that. We want to hear that out. But we want to understand that the truth is what helps us clarify the narrative and not the other way around. The narrative should never inform truth. The truth should always help us understand what people are going through. So again, deconstructing itself as a practice is not necessarily a bad thing, but we want to practice it carefully. And my point in giving you all that example, to point all this out, my point of looking at this recent trend is to show you that this is nothing new. This is what the Jewish people were doing here to Jesus. There are questions that we see here in our passage. They're essentially looking to deconstruct Jesus and his claims. They looked at his origin. And they saw that it did not fit with their narrative. And so they discredited Jesus. They claimed him as a fraud, and they were essentially looking to cancel him. And we see here in their questions, then, two problems. First, we see a problem with their methodology, as I've been saying. They're looking to fit Jesus within their teaching, within their traditions. They're looking for Jesus to fit their narrative. In other words, Jesus did not look like the Messiah they expected. And we see here the standard of judgment that they're using. It's their own man-made storyline. It's trying to play by their rules and not God's. But that is exactly the problem here. See, when you're dealing with someone like Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the God-man... God's ways are higher than man's. God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. We abide to God's rules, not ours. We live in God's stories and not in our own. And we see here the first issue is their methodology. The second problem we see here is their attitude. You see, once Jesus didn't fit within their narrative, once Jesus didn't fit within their expectations, the Jewish people, they grew angry and bitter at Jesus. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to dethrone him. And so they approached Jesus with a certain sneer and mockery. They didn't question him in order to find out the truth. They questioned him, hoping to destroy him. They wanted to arrest him. And when they saw that they couldn't argue the way around Jesus, they turned even more violent ways. They looked to kill him. We see these two issues here, methodology and attitude appearing amongst the Jewish people, and it's the exact same issues that we see in many of the deconstructionist approach to discrediting Christianity today. This is nothing new. At the end of the day, what we're dealing here with is we're dealing with doubt. Doubt. Doubt over whether or not Jesus is really who he says he is. And perhaps you yourself are in that position today. You're wrestling with doubt. You're wondering to yourself, can I truly trust what the Bible teaches? Perhaps you're going through some tough times in your life and you're wondering, does God even listen to me? Can I trust in God and His promises? Perhaps you're looking at events around the world like what's going on in Ukraine and you're wondering how can a good God allow this to happen? And so you're wrestling with doubts. You're wrestling with whether or not what scripture says is true. And that's okay. It's okay to wrestle with doubts. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to be bothered by some of the hard truths that scripture teaches. It's okay to be bothered by some of the hard claims that Jesus has as long as you're honest with yourself, being in a place of doubt is not necessarily a bad place because God welcomes you still and he wants to help you with your doubt. Let's, let's look back at the text again. Let's look to see how Jesus' answers helps us with doubt. Because I, I believe that Jesus here gives us some clarity Jesus here, as we looked at in verse twenty, uh, verse twenty-eight, he says, "You know me, you know where, you, you know where I come from." So this again was him answering them. But here's his answer: "But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know." You see, I believe Jesus here. Jesus here is asking the Jews, and he's telling them, it's not just whether or not do you believe in God, but it's about do you want to believe in God? Do you want to believe that Jesus is truly God and what he teaches and proclaims is true? Do you want that to be true? Do you want that to be the greatest news you have ever heard? Because Jesus here, he didn't really answer his question, but what he does is he shows them. He shows them their unbelief. You do not know him who sent me. The root of their questions is their unbelief. It's not that they don't believe in God. Remember, we're dealing here with Jews. They believe in a God. They believe that they know God, right? They they have the scriptures. They have the law. They have their history and their teachings. They know God, But the Jews, but Jesus here reveals their hearts. They do not want to believe. They didn't accept what Jesus was saying, and so they they looked to discredit Jesus by deconstructing him. But in reality, in reality, what what's happening here is Jesus is using their own questions to deconstruct their faith, their traditions, and their teachings. Jesus is saying, you think you're questioning me? Actually, what is happening here is your question reveals who you are. And what it reveals is that you do not believe, and because you are reacting this way, because you're reacting with such hatred against me, it shows me that you do not want to believe in me. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. You see, once you begin to question Jesus in his word, once you begin to look upon Jesus as just who he is and what he claims to be, you're, you can't really deconstruct Jesus. In actuality, ultimately, Jesus will begin to deconstruct you. Why is that? Because Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what the truth does. It reveals your heart. The truth cuts in deep and it cuts cleanly. We can wrestle with what the Bible teaches. We can wrestle with different interpretations. But the bottom line question is this. Do you believe in God as he reveals himself in the Bible? And when you begin there, you begin with the foundation of a strong belief on God. That becomes the fundamental belief. And on top of that, you can build everything else because if God exists, then God communicates who he is in his word. And if God speaks through his word, then everything in his word must be true. As we take a look at this passage, we see here that Jesus is not true. He is not fitting himself into their story here into their narrative instead what we see here is that the jewish people all of us we are all characters in his story they the jews here look to arrest jesus but jesus says says, well john comments here in verse 30 says that his hour had not yet come his hour has not yet come See, Jesus works according to his timing and his narrative. He does not abide by man's will, but by God's will. And Jesus' hour does eventually come. But it comes not according to when the Jews wanted to arrest him, but when he gives himself over to them. When Jesus gives himself over to the authorities to be tried by the people and to eventually be hung on the cross. All that was done according to God's plan and God's story. See, God God is the author of this narrative. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And on the third day, he rose victoriously from the grave, defeating our sins. This is the gospel truth. And the irony of all this is that this gospel truth, from that point on, does indeed get spread amongst the Greeks and Gentiles. You see, ironically, the Jews were indeed somewhat right. Jesus does go out to them, to all nations, from all walks of life, to welcome them, to invite them into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is showing the Jews the truth, I want to invite you this morning to see how Jesus is also showing you the truth about who he is. Jesus here is inviting you, inviting you to know him and to believe in him. This gets into next week's passage, but I do want to point this out because I believe this is where this entire scene, the Feast of Booths, is heading towards. If you take a look with me at verse 38. Jesus here on the last day, he says this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of uh, sorry, I I guess I should go back to verse 37. Let's start there. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, this is Jesus speaking to his enemies, speaking to the Jewish people who wanted to kill him. And yet to his enemies, Jesus says, whoever seeks to believe, whoever believes in me, come and drink. And from me, you will receive eternal life. If you this morning are wrestling with doubt, Jesus is inviting you Inviting you to drink from him, the living water, to come and believe in him. To know that Jesus indeed is truly the Christ, the son of God. And so then the big idea for this morning's message is this, that Jesus tackles your doubts by narrowing in on the most fundamental question, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus in his word? Jesus is inviting you to believe. And yes, that does mean you will wrestle with your hearts, with your doubts, and that is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And you will have emotional reactions to the claims of Scripture, to the claims of Jesus. Ultimately, it comes down to whether or not you believe in Jesus and his word. To end, just want to have A quick word for those of you who may know someone who is currently going through a process of wrestling with their doubt. Perhaps they are deconstructing their faith. Perhaps this is someone who grew up in the church and has now walked away wrestling with their own hearts, wrestling with whether or not they believe in God and believe in Christ. First, I want to encourage you, just don't be harsh with them. If they're friends or family, don't be harsh with them. Instead, ask them why they have doubts. Don't, don't just seek to answer their questions, but ask them why they have questions and listen. Many times they've they've had a painful experience that led them down this path, they, and they have a narrative that should indeed be heard. But Again, that narrative doesn't necessarily dictate the truth, but we should hear their voice in all this. And so don't accuse them, don't judge them. Instead, disciple them. Disciple them. Speak the gospel truth to them. Show them how Jesus indeed is the truth. Because it begins there first. Their faith in Christ. And then show them the same compassion that Jesus here has shown to us. Invite them to drink from Jesus. Because we too were once doubters ourselves, were we not? Yet by Christ, by his grace, he gives us living water the truth about who he is, and by believing him, we have all received eternal life. Invite them to know this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us clarity upon our hearts, upon this world. Your word that gives us a promise of salvation, that shows us your story that shows us Christ, your Son. May we relish this truth. May we re- see how this truth is the greatest truth that we can ever drink from, because this truth gives us eternal life. And so I pray, Lord, for any one of us here who may be wrestling with doubts about this, or who may know someone who's wrestling with these kind of doubts. I pray, Lord, that you will be gentle with them, that, Lord, you will show compassion to them, and that, Lord, your spirit will move amongst them and show them Christ. Thank you, God, for your wonderful gospel story. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. You are indeed an awesome, holy, good God who is in control of all things. May we continue to submit our lives to your will. I pray all this in your name. Amen.